Section 10 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 30 Ireland under Queen Anne. We have described the relations which existed between England and Scotland before the accomplishment of the Act of Union and the conditions which rendered the act satisfactory and propitious to the inclinations and welfare of the one country and the other. Nothing could be more unlike the relations between England and Scotland, up to the time of the Union and after, than those which existed between England and Ireland. England and Scotland, even when parts of the same kingdom and governed under one crown, were to a great extent independent states, equal partners in one imperial system. They were rivals in trade, commerce, and navigation, and each had her own system of laws and her own national institutions. Scotland had won her great victory of Bannockburn, and when, at a later period of history, the two countries came to be ruled by the same sovereign, it was Scotland which gave a king, and a succession to England, and not England to Scotland. Ireland, on the other hand, since her conquest by England, had always been treated as a conquered country. The great object of England seemed to be the suppression or eradication of Ireland's national customs, sentiments, and tendencies. There was little or nothing in common between the traditions of England and of Ireland, and England seemed ever anxious to emphasize the fact that no such community should be allowed to grow up so far as she could prevent it. When England accepted the Reformation, Ireland held fast to the faith of Rome, and her English rulers strove in vain during many generations to crush the religious worship of the Irish people by the most widespread and at the same time most minute persecution. Ireland had had but little opportunity for success in manufactures, in commerce, and in trade, and her English rulers did all they could to put a stop to every attempt at rivalry in those directions. Ireland was mainly an agricultural country, and each succeeding struggle against her conqueror had ended alike in the expatriation of the old Irish families and the planting of stranger landlords with English ways, successful soldiers for the most part, in the place of the expelled Irish owners of the soil. Even when England was still ruled by Catholic sovereigns, the treatment of the Irish Catholic population had been just as severe and oppressive as in the days after the Reformation. Ireland remained faithful to the cause of the Stuarts, not that she had any particular love or devotion for the Stuarts, or any reason for such love or devotion, but because the Stuarts represented that religion to which Ireland clung through all pains and troubles, the religion which England was then persistently persecuting on Irish soil. Ireland had also a strong sympathy with France, partly because France was believed or supposed to have had friendly feelings toward the Irish people, and partly to no doubt, because France was the avowed enemy of England. 
There had been at one time a Spanish settlement in parts of the west and south of Ireland, and some of the old towns in these places still kept up the evidences of their Spanish origin, and indeed, evidences to the same effect are even yet to be seen among the southern and western peasantry. Cromwell had done his best to plant a whole population of English masters in Ireland, and James II had made the island a battlefield during his later struggles to maintain the crown of England against the invasion of William of Orange. Down to a much later day, few English statesmen seem to have thought it worth their while to consider whether the Irish people might not be won over to a real companionship with England by a policy of justice, of mercy, and of brotherhood. The one prevailing idea appears to have been that for the welfare of England and for the security of England's rule, it was absolutely necessary to suppress the Catholic worship by any process and to convert the Irish tiller of the soil into a mere serf and vassal, depending for his very life upon the will of his master. There were, at the time with which we are at present dealing, no United States across the Atlantic where the Irish peasant might find a home and the means of prospering, and there were no great self-governing English colonies which could hold out to him any fair prospect of religious equality and personal independence. When the Irishmen of those days had the means to seek a new career outside the power of the English crown, he was ready to devote his services to some foreign state, all the more ready if that foreign state happened to be an avowed enemy of England. We have seen already in this history that the representatives of many famous Irish houses gave themselves up thus to the service of some foreign state and died on continental battlefields fighting against the armies of England. The visitor to Rome may see at this day, in one of the great churches there, the tombs of two illustrious exiles who had striven in vain to maintain on Irish soil the struggle against the English conquerors. Even amongst Irish Protestants, although many of them were naturally drawn by religious affinity to accept the English supremacy with welcome and devotion, there were some in each generation who threw in their lot to the last with the losing national cause. It is a somewhat curious fact, well worthy of grave consideration, that down to days very near our own, every effort at armed rebellion in Ireland and for Ireland has had Protestant leaders at its front. This fact cannot be too earnestly impressed upon the minds of readers who might be apt to think that the whole question between England's rule and Ireland's resistance was merely a conflict of religious sects. Statesmanship in England had not yet risen to the idea that the killing of rebels is not the best way of extinguishing rebellion. Ireland had a parliament of her own in the days of Queen Anne, but it was not by any means an independent parliament like the estates of Scotland, and it was of no value whatever as a representative of national opinions and interests. Long before the fall of the Stuart dynasty, a measure had been carried into law which rendered the Irish Parliament a mere dependent on the Parliament of England, or, in other words, on the English government. 
this measure, which had become famous in history as Poyning's Act or Poyning's Law, was passed during the rule of Sir Edward Poyning, then Lord Deputy, or, as we should now say, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, at the close of the 15th century. It made all measures passed by the English Parliament absolute law in Ireland, and it further prevented the Irish Parliament from passing any measures applying to Ireland alone, which did not receive in advance the approval of the Sovereign and the Council of England. Thus the legislation for Ireland was made wholly dependent, even for its initiation, on the will of the English Sovereign, and whatever that Sovereign and the English Parliament chose to enact became law for Ireland. It has also to be remembered that the Irish Parliament was in no sense whatever a representative institution, and that during the greater part of its existence all those who belonged to the national faith, or could be supposed to represent the national opinions, were excluded by law from any share in its deliberations. Poyning's Act was not repealed until April 1782, when the peaceful but very ominous agitation of Henry Grattan and the Irish volunteers compelled the English sovereign and his parliament to give for the time to the Irish representative assembly the right to make laws applying to Ireland. In Queen Anne's days, as in all other days, the Lord Deputy was generally some English nobleman who stood high in the favor of the political party then prevailing in England. Many enactments had been passed under these conditions, which dealt invidiously with whatever trading and commercial enterprises might be undertaken in Ireland, and made the interests of the smaller island entirely subservient to those of Great Britain. No one professing the national faith in Ireland could hold any public office in Parliament or out of it. Even in the comparatively enlightened days of Queen Anne, Measures were introduced again and again with the object of abolishing or at all events restricting the sort of toleration which was allowed to Catholics in Ireland during the reign of Charles II. When the Duke of Ormond, who had played a part not particularly distinguished in the great campaign, was sent over to Ireland to manage affairs in that country as Lord Deputy, the Irish House of Commons constituted under the conditions we have just described presented for his approval a list of new measures intended to prevent the further growth of popery. Bishop Burnet tells us that the House pressed the Duke with more than usual vehemence to intercede so effectually that it, the first of the proposed measures, might be returned back under the great seal of England. This was, of course, a necessary condition for any further proceeding with the measure, and the Duke of Ormond, entering warmly into the spirit of the whole business, gave his gracious promise that he would recommend it in the most effectual manner and do everything in his power to prevent the growth of popery. The modern reader may be well excused if he finds something broadly farcical in all this process of legislation. The country to which it was to be applied had a population the vast majority of whom were then, as now, devoted adherents to the Church of Rome. The Irish Parliament, to whom was entrusted the right, at least, 
of asking leave to introduce measures for the government of the Irish people, was a body from whom all persons professing the religion of the Catholic Church were rigorously excluded. This curiously constructed representative Irish chamber became a supplicant to the British Lord Deputy that he would graciously obtain the sanction of the English sovereign to a series of measures devised for the purpose of preventing the further growth of popery. I might indeed suppose, says John Mitchell, an Irishman, who, although a strong nationalist, was not a Catholic, nor in any manner of religious sympathy with Catholics, that popery had been already sufficiently discouraged, seeing that the bishops and regular clergy had been banished, that Catholics were excluded by law from all honorable or lucrative employments, carefully disarmed, and plundered of almost every acre of their ancient inheritances. The Irish Parliament of Queen Anne's day was, however, of opinion that a good deal more yet remained to be done for the discouragement and eradication of the faith, which was held by six out of every seven of the Irish native population. One clause of the proposed measure was intended to enact that if the son of a papist should at any time become a Protestant, his father might not from that time sell or mortgage his estate or dispose of the whole or any part of it by will. The meaning of this was, of course, that the moment the son of any Roman Catholic landowner went over to the Protestant faith, his father found himself instantly transformed into a mere occupying tenant of the land and had no more right or power to dispose of it than if he were a laborer living in a hut on the estate. Another clause provided that a papist should not be guardian to his own child, and that if the child, no matter how young, should conform to the Protestant religion, he reduced by that act his father to the position of a mere occupant for life, and that the child was at once to be taken from the guardianship of his father and placed under the care of the nearest of kin who happened to belong to the church recognized by the state. Yet another clause declared papists incapable of purchasing landed estates or receiving any rents or profits arising out of land and excluded a papist from the right of succeeding to the property of any Protestant relative. Other clauses declared that the estate of a papist who was not fortunate enough to have a Protestant heir should be parceled out in equal shares among all his children or his next of kin, and that papists must take the oath of abjuration and the sacramental tests in order to qualify them for holding any public office or for voting at any election. When the royal assent had been given to the introduction of this measure, the process of passing it into law was not accomplished without considerable trouble to Queen Anne herself and to her advisers. Queen Anne was at this time in alliance with the sovereign of Catholic Austria, and the English government was bringing active pressure to bear upon the emperor for the relief of his Protestant subjects from certain disqualifications imposed upon them because of their religious faith. It seemed somewhat inconsistent with these efforts to obtain religious equality in a foreign state 
that the government of Queen Anne should occupy itself at the same time with the introduction of additional penalties for the profession of the Catholic faith in Ireland. Queen Anne's government easily got over any scruples of conscience which might have arisen in their minds with regard to this apparent inconsistency, and the Irish executive obtained full authority to take all the necessary steps for carrying the new measure safely through the Parliament of Ireland. There was not much trouble in the accomplishment of this feat, and the measure, when it passed through the Irish Parliament, was sent on to England to receive the confirmation of what we should now call the Imperial Parliament. The English Parliament not only approved of the measure, so far as it went, but actually added a new clause, the object of which was to introduce still further disqualifications and penalties for the practice of any religion not recognized by the sovereign and the state. This new clause was directed not merely against Roman Catholics, but also and especially against the Protestant dissenting bodies in Ireland. There was at that time a large and increasing body of Protestant dissenters in the province of Ulster, many or most of them men of influence and comparative wealth, and the new clause declared that no one in Ireland should be capable of holding any public office or should be entitled to belong to the magistracy who had not qualified himself for the position by receiving the sacraments according to the rights of the state church in England. This was, in fact, only an extension to Ireland of the Test Act, which had up to that time been applicable only to England and had not been made part of the system of laws governing the smaller island. Thus the only alteration which the English Parliament made in the measure imposing new disqualifications on Irish Catholics was the introduction of a fresh clause imposing further disqualifications and penalties on Irish Protestant dissenters. It has been pleaded in defense of the course taken by the Queen's government that the very introduction of this further clause only testified to their lack of sympathy with the intolerant spirit which impelled the Irish Parliament at such a time to embarrass Queen Anne by demanding further measures of persecution against the Irish Catholics. In one of George Eliot's novels we are told of a somewhat soured tempered old lady who, when asked by her husband to give him some more tea, filled his cup so full with the desired liquid that it ran over and was spilt into his saucer, thereby conveying to him the intimation that if he wanted more tea he should have it with a vengeance. According to the theory set up by those who defend the government of Queen Anne in this instance, the idea was that if the Irish Parliament at that moment wanted more religious disqualifications, it should have them with a vengeance, and that the Protestant dissenters in Ulster, who were an important body and might be supposed to favor the inconvenient measure in its original form, should be made to feel that it could be brought to bear on them as well as on their Roman Catholic fellow-subjects. The good Bishop Burnet is apparently inclined to favor this idea. According to his view of the matter, it was hoped by those who got this clause added to the bill that those in Ireland who promoted it most would now be the less fond of it when it had such a weight hung to it. 
if any of the advisers of Queen Anne were cherishing this secret hope in their minds, the hope was doomed to complete disappointment. Some of the Irish Protestant dissenters did indeed strongly object to the new clause, but their remonstrance was entirely unavailing. The desire to impose further disqualifications upon a Catholic body in Ireland was too strong among the ruling classes in both countries to give the Irish Protestant dissenters any chance of asserting with effect their own claims to religious equality. The bill was passed into law and in due course received the royal assent. During the progress of the bill through the Irish Parliament, a strong protest against its passing was made by certain leading Catholics who claimed their right to be heard by counsel against the provisions of the measure. During the debates on the petition which they presented, there were many references made to the provisions of the famous Treaty of Limerick, which was supposed to have guaranteed among its conditions the recognition of religious equality for the Catholics of Ireland. The controversy which long prevailed over the manner in which the conditions of the treaty had been set aside by the ruling powers was still in Queen Anne's reign a bitter dispute and was regarded by the Irish people as one of the greatest grievances ever imposed upon them by their English conquerors. Although the facts on which the controversy was founded do not strictly belong to the history of Queen Anne's reign, yet the effect which they produced on the relations between England and Ireland was still a most serious element of dissatisfaction among the Irish people and an abiding cause of Ireland's profoundest discontent with English rule, and it is therefore of some importance that a summary of the whole controversy should be introduced into this part of the present work. Up to our own days, the Treaty of Limerick and the manner in which its conditions were made to fail in their application is a subject of eager interest among Irish populations at home and abroad, and may be heard of again and again at every meeting of Irish nationalists in any of the great cities of the United States, Canada, and Australia, as in Ireland itself. The Treaty of Limerick was the agreement by virtue of which the great struggle William III was carrying on in Ireland against James II had been brought to a close, and William had been recognized as King of Ireland. The city of Limerick had held out to the very last against the forces of King William, and it was especially important for William to bring the Irish struggle to an end for the good reason, among many other reasons, that he saw in prospect a great war to be undertaken against what then seemed the ever-increasing power of France. William was himself in the Netherlands at the time when the siege came to an end. The city was defended by the celebrated Irish patriot and soldier Patrick Sarsfield, who had been created Earl of Lucan by James II in return for the military services which he had rendered to the king on English as well as on Irish battlefields. The siege of Limerick was conducted by General Glinkle, a Dutch officer who had accompanied William III to England in 1688, served at the Battle of the Boyne, and when William returned to England was left in chief command of William's forces in Ireland. The besieged garrison held out with such spirit and tenacity and King William's further purposes rendered it so imperative 
to bring the Irish war to a close, that Ginkle thought it desirable to enter on some terms of surrender with the defenders of the place. The defenders of Limerick soon made it clear that they would not listen to any terms which did not contain stipulations for the securing of religious liberty to those who might now be regarded as the conquered race. One of the principal conditions of the surrender, therefore, was that the Roman Catholics of Ireland should in the future enjoy such privileges in the exercise of their religion as were consistent with the laws of Ireland, or as they had enjoyed in the reign of King Charles II. Other words of the same article undertook that their majesties, King William and Queen Mary, as soon as their affairs would permit them to summon a parliament in Ireland, would endeavor to procure for the Irish Roman Catholics such further security as might preserve them from any disturbance on account of their religion. These were the provisions of the treaty on which the whole subsequent controversy set in. The articles, which referred only to the terms and mode of the capitulation, need not engage our attention here. Now it must be said that in stipulating for such measure of religious liberty as the Irish Roman Catholics had during the reign of King Charles II, the defenders of Limerick were not stipulating for any great concession. Even in the reign of Charles II there were many severe and utterly ignoble disqualifications and penalties to which Irish Catholics were liable disqualifications and penalties which in more modern days would be regarded as utterly inconsistent with the first principles of civilized government. Still, it is clear that the defenders of Limerick believed that the acceptance of their stipulation would give some extension of religious liberty to their fellow countrymen to recompense them for their reluctant consent to the proposals for capitulation. We may briefly summarize the history of this whole transaction by saying that the terms of the treaty were never carried out, that the Irish Parliament, constituted as we have described it, declared the concessions made to the Irish Catholics by the treaty to be entirely outside the limits of the law, and that not merely were no special concessions made to the Irish Catholics, but that immediately after the surrender of Limerick, both the English and the Irish parliaments went on passing further measures of disqualification and penalty for those who openly practiced the worship enjoined by the Church of Rome. Sarsfield and his comrades left the country, most of them to fight against England on the battlefields of the continent, Sarsfield to give up his gallant life to the service of France on one such field. Limerick is still called by Irish writers and speakers the city of the violated treaty, and the residents of the place are still proud to show the treaty stone on which Sarsfield signed his name to the terms of capitulation. There have been many ingenious arguments set up to justify the disregard which the Sovereign and the Parliament of England showed toward the special conditions on which alone the defenders of Limerick gave up the struggle they had so long and gallantly maintained. It was argued, of course, with some plausibility that the British commander-in-chief, General Ginkle, had no authority to make such terms without the sanction and consent of the English Crown and Parliament, 
and that of Sarsfield and his companions were so unwise as to believe that he had any such authority, they had only themselves to blame for their delusion and disappointment. It has been seriously argued by one eminent English historian that the concessions of religious liberty made in the terms of the treaty were so absurdly generous that no Roman Catholic in his senses could possibly have believed there was any chance of fulfillment. These are arguments which fill one with a curious interest, showing as they do how the minds of even grave and responsible historians may sometimes be diverted from the recognition of the plainest principles governing all agreements by an instinctive sympathy with one or the other of the parties to the agreement. Let us assume for a moment that it was in the power of Sarsfield to maintain his forces still in the garrison long after the treaty had been signed, and after Ginkle had sent away most of his troops on the faith of an honorable surrender, and that King William's plans had thus been wholly marred for the time. It is hardly to be supposed that any English historian would hold Sarsfield to be thoroughly excused from his breach of the agreement by the fact that James II had, after some delay, declined to approve of it. When the commander-in-chief of a British army, placed in a position of supreme difficulty, is allowed to make an arrangement greatly to his advantage with the opposing force, it is not usual after all is done and the opposing force has actually withdrawn for him to be told by his sovereign that he had no right to make any such arrangement and that the conditions which he accepted are not to be carried out. At all events, one thing is perfectly certain. Sarsfield and his companions believed that they were entering into an agreement which Ginkle had full authority to make and England was certain to carry out, and that except under the influence of such a belief, they would never have surrendered the garrison and allowed the Irish war to come to a close. The Irish House of Lords had, even before the union between England and Scotland, shown themselves strongly in favor of an act of union between England and Ireland. In 1703, the Irish peers actually issued an address to Her Majesty praying that she would be graciously pleased to direct measures for the passing of an act uniting the parliaments of England and Ireland. After the union with Scotland had been accomplished, the Irish House of Lords renewed the appeal to the Queen and once again urged her to institute measures for the legislation which they desired to put in motion. The Duke of Ormond was the Viceroy of Ireland. Queen Anne and her ministers paid little or no attention to the urgent appeal made by the Irish House of Lords and supported by at least some measures of the Irish House of Commons. Froude, the historian, has made severe comment on the inaction or indifference of the ruler and her council. No excuse, he says, can be pleaded for Queen Anne's ministers or for the English nation whose resolution they represented in meeting these overtures of the Irish Parliament. Froude goes on to moralize in eloquent words on the neglect of what seemed to him an auspicious chance for an early and complete union between the parliaments of the two countries. Opportunities occur in the affairs of nations which, if allowed to pass, return no more. The offered union was thrown away 
when it would have been accepted gratefully as the most precious boon which England could bestow, was thrown away in the meanest and basest spirit of commercial jealousy. No rational fear of present danger, no anxiety to prevent injustice, no honorable motive of any kind whatever can be imagined as having influenced the persons, whoever they were, that were generally responsible for the decision. In fatal blindness they persuaded themselves that the Union would make Ireland rich and that England's interest was to keep her poor. The Queen returned a cold reply that she would have no particular answer at present, but would take the question into consideration. The consideration never came. The wisdom of the precious resolution was never doubted or reviewed, and from this one act, as from a scorpion's egg, sprang a fresh and yet uncompleted cycle of dissatisfaction, rebellion, and misery. Froude was a man of high intellect, sincere purpose, and a most vivid descriptive power, but nature does not seem to have endowed him with the faculties which create a safe guide in political history. On no other political questions, moreover, is Froude so apt to go astray as on questions which have to do with the relations between England and Ireland. He seems in this particular instance to have allowed his own feelings to carry him as far astray in judging of the motives which inspired the action, or rather the inaction, of Queen Anne's advisers as in estimating the real value of the advice given by the Irish House of Lords. It is not necessary to assume that Queen Anne and her ministers were governed only by a desire to pander to England's commercial jealousy and to persuade themselves that England's interest was to keep Ireland poor. Queen Anne and her advisers might well have seen, without any marvelous inspiration of foresight, that a real union between England and Ireland would have been absolutely impossible under the conditions which then existed. They had probably the best reasons also for knowing that the resolutions of the Irish House of Lords or even of the Irish House of Commons were absolutely worthless as a representation of the feelings and interests which belonged to the Irish people. By no possible ingenuity of statesmanship could the great majority of the Irish people have been prevailed upon at such a time and under such conditions to accept a legislative union with England. The Irish Parliament, as we have already shown, was a Parliament merely of the conquerors, and had no claim whatever to represent the sentiments of the conquered. Indeed, the Irish Parliament, if such a question could have fairly been put to it, would probably have rejected with scorn and anger the bare suggestion that it had anything whatever to do with the sentiments and the opinions of the Irish population. The English Parliament under Queen Anne was at that very time engaged, as we have seen, at the suggestion of the Irish Parliament, in passing fresh enactments for the repression of popery, as it was called in Ireland, the religion to which the vast majority of the population were still clinging with unabated devotion. The one central idea influencing the actions of the Irish Parliament was to make the Protestant Church absolute in Ireland and, if possible, to compel the Irish people to accept its ministrations. 
let us do justice even to the members of the Irish Parliament, the representatives of English conquest and of the English conquering race. These noble lords and honorable members had convinced themselves, no doubt, that it would be an immense benefit for the Irish people to be made converts by any process to the Protestant faith, and were quite satisfied that any amount of coercion applied for that purpose would, if only successful, have tended to the moral and material benefit of the Irish people. The same sort of thing has to be said, we may take it for granted, on behalf of every conquering race. The conquerors do not enact their penal laws merely for the wanton purpose of oppressing and torturing the races over whom they have come to rule. They are convinced in their own minds that their religion and their ways are the best for everybody, and that any needful coercion which can be exercised in the hope of compelling other races to adopt them must be amply justified by the possible result. But however the conquerors may satisfy their own minds on this point, the process of coercion is not one which is likely to lead to satisfactory and genuine union between those who exercise and those who have to endure the oppression. It would probably have been no worse for the Irish if at that time the Irish Parliament had been completely merged in the Parliament of England. No English Parliament, even if it had been composed exclusively of Englishmen, could have been less fitted to represent the majority of the Irish people than the Parliament which was allowed to exercise its subordinate jurisdiction on Irish soil. Froude's eloquent indignation over the supposed loss of happy opportunity by Queen Anne and those with whom she consulted is wholly thrown away. The first condition of a real and enduring legislative union between England and Ireland would have been the abolition of all the laws inflicting penalties on the practice of that religion to which, as a nation, the Irish people were uncompromisingly attached. Even such a measure, were it possible at the time, could hardly have reconciled Ireland to those decrees which had dispossessed so many of her ancient families in order to bestow their lands and possessions upon the favorite soldiers of successive invaders and conquerors. The Irish peasant of the West, the South, or the Midlands could hardly wander far from his own hovel without seeing the ruins of some castle which had been in former days the possession of an ancient family whose history was identified with the traditions of the region, or some castle still in proud repair which had been handed over by this or that conqueror to a successful follower as a reward for his military enterprise, or the mouldering walls of some abbey where the forefathers of that peasant had worshipped in the days gone by before English sovereigns had made it their duty to resist the growth of popery. Everywhere he turned, the Irish peasant met with evidences telling him that he belonged to a subjected race and was living in a conquered country. The Irish peasant has a natural love of old memories and old traditions. It is a question whether even a system of government which gave him a fair chance of individual security, prosperity, and happiness would have quite made up to him 
for the changes forced upon him by the new owners of the land. But in those days the Irish peasant found no chance left open to him of individual security and prosperity, and he was indeed one of the most hardly used and impoverished human creatures on the earth. Irishmen of means who were able to leave the country were already fast flying from it to seek service in foreign armies and in foreign lands, and those Irish who had to remain at home found the truth forced on them more and more with the life of every day that in their imported rulers they had only enemies, or at the best had only men who did not care enough about them even to try to be their friends. Under such conditions it mattered little or nothing to the majority of the Irish population whether the so-called Irish Parliament was actually merged or not in that English Parliament to which the laws of the conqueror made it in any case subservient. The readers of Walter Scott's novels, and one is glad to know by the constant publication of new editions that his novels find still increasing numbers of readers in our own days, will remember some of the powerful and painful chapters in The Bride of Lammermoor, which picture the constant state of strife between the representatives and followers of the ancient and dispossessed families and the members and followers of those families whom revolution and conquest had settled in the ancient homes. But at no time in Scotland had there been anything like the widespread unsettlement and resettlement which conquest had accomplished in Ireland. Scotland had never been a conquered country, and even when her condition was most disturbed by war and revolution, she had always maintained her national existence. Her people had never been threatened with extermination. By the time that Queen Anne came to the throne of England, the Irish people had seen so many unsuccessful rebellions that they had little heart left for any new attempt of their own just then and they clung to the cause of the exiled Stuart sovereigns, mainly because it seemed to promise some hope of a movement from abroad against England which might give Ireland a chance of asserting her national claims. The time had not yet come when English statesmanship could raise its mind to the contemplation of any better means of making Ireland a contented, loyal, and prosperous member of the imperial system than by passing measures to prevent the growth of Roman Catholicism and to provide against any possible rivalry in commerce or manufactures which might tend to the disadvantage of English trade. The conditions under which alone the union with England could have been tolerated by Scotland, no English sovereign or statesman would have thought of conceding to Ireland, and the Irish people had no means of enforcing the conditions by any power of their own. There is no need, therefore, to feel any particular surprise when we read that Queen Anne and her counsellors did not pay much attention to the urgent request of the Irish House of Lords for some measures to bring about a formal union between the Parliament of the Conquering Country and the so-called Parliament of the Conquered People. End of Section 10